experience for the kids. And if you're not 3 to 10, that is, that is a good thing. If you're not 3 to 10, then you get to stay here and the worship continues in the Word of God. In Ephesians 4, our pastors have been preaching their way through the wonderful epistle of Ephesians, one of my favorite books, and on occasion I have the privilege of preaching, and I'm thankful to the elders for the invitation to preach from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 this morning. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you, I know we stand and sit a lot here, and if you're not able to stand and sit a lot, you feel free to remain seated, okay? But in a moment, I'll ask you to honor the Lord by standing, and we'll read his precious word together. Is it ready to project? Okay. We're going to read his precious word together in unison. So would you stand, please? And I'll try to cue you on the first word as we read it together. Oh, man. I'll crane my neck. Here we go. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us all read together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. No longer steal, but rather let him honest work with his own hands so that have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And you may be seated. And I'd like to ask you please to pray with me. I'm going to kneel for years and years before preaching. I have knelt And you're invited to kneel if you would like to, and if you have space to, and if you're physically able to. Uh, You don't have to do that. It's not required. Nobody's looking around to see who kneels and who doesn't. But the point is that we humble ourselves in this way. The most important thing is that our hearts are humbled, as well as our entire being. So let's pray. We're so blessed, O God, to know you as a God who makes yourself known readily. You're not hesitant about it at all. We bless you for the the word of God that is so precious to us and so accessible to us. We're fully aware that it is not so in other parts of the world where not many copies of the body uh, of the Bible are are possessed, and there may be none in many languages, so we are so blessed. 
And we thank you for the living word who is Christ. How we bless you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Now I want to pray for your help. I pray that you would help me. This is such a massively important text of Scripture. I pray that you will help me, grant me the gift of self-forgetfulness so that the people here will be hearing from you and I only a a pipeline, uh, a spokesperson. Pray for your grace to abound to me and also the grace of help to all who are here to really, really hear you from you. I pray that you will call by name those who are not in Christ, who are in the dark, that you would call them and rescue them out of darkness and into the light of your life, which is really life. And that you would call some who believe that they've been saved. They're religiously lost people, really. So call them. And then I pray, use this text to cleanse your people. Cleanse us here at Redeemer 30A. You've created us. You've given us new life in Jesus. And you call us to live lives that reflect the beauty of Christ and the glory of your greatness. And at times we slip back. We revert back to our fleshliness. We we sin and we get used to it. May it not be. So cleanse us. Prepare us to live for your service, for your usefulness, and for your glory and worship, I pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen. We are going to get to Ephesians 4. I want to begin by reading from the Apostle Paul's farewell remarks to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. You don't have to turn there. But I've been thinking about this text for several days, knowing that communion is coming at the conclusion of our service. So you bear that in mind. And as we who trust and love Christ share in communion after I preach, I want you to have this question that I'll share with you in mind. It comes from Acts 20, 28. Because there Paul urges the the elders with whom he spent several years, men who were very precious to him. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Speaking of the blood of Jesus, and we know that Jesus is God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I urge you to receive this verse for yourselves, even though most of you are not elders. It applies to us. Be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves. You're a part of the church whom Jesus obtained or purchased with his own blood if you're in Christ. And think about this. What all does it mean that Christ has purchased you with his life's blood? What difference does it make? And what are the implications 
of this. And now I want to move on to the sermon. If you're a note taker, a sheet's been provided in your worship guide, and I'll try to help you follow along. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, and I thank you for reading it together with me. First, verse 25 begins with the connective word, therefore. And you know that connective words are important for us to pay attention to. And because therefore is there, we have to ask, what is therefore, therefore? No groaning at all. So I don't have to apologize. It's there to draw our attention to the content of the previous verses that are foundational for what's to follow. So let's review. I listened to Pastor David's sermon last Sunday on verses 17 through 24. Renette and I were gone because I had the privilege of preaching in a little church in Niceville that does not have a pastor. And David did a fine job in preaching that text This time of review is going to be a bit lengthy, not because David didn't preach well, but because the foundation laid for 25 through 32 is so crucial. I want to make sure that you get it, knowing that some of you weren't here to listen to David. Verses 17 through 21 portray a startling and and stark contrast between people who don't believe in Christ. They're referred to as Gentiles who do not love and follow Christ. Contrasted with those who have learned Christ and believe in Him for rescue from sin and death. So those who either passively or intentionally reject God's Son, denying their perilous condition of sinfulness, their deadness and trespasses and sins are described here. 17 through 19. Now this I say, Paul wrote, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, those who don't know Christ, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated, wow, these are powerful words, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's the description of those who don't believe and love Christ. But then verses 20 and 21. And the word but is here. It signals the contrast. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Paul's writing to the the believers in Ephesus. And the Spirit is applying it to us. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is is in Jesus. Jesus here is the subject. He's the teacher. 
and he is the environment of the truth. That's not my thing. I read it from a commentator. I thought it was pretty cool. That's number one. Some of you here belong to Christ. Because God has brought you to life and you've seen the reality of your sin, your separation from Him, the destructiveness of the life that will lead to eternal living, conscious death in hell. And some of you, by God's grace, have embraced Christ. Did I mix this up? Some of you are believers in Christ and some of you aren't. Number two. By God's grace and mercy, believers in Jesus, and this is in your notes, there's something for you to fill in, I think. Believers in Jesus have learned Christ, heard about Him, or heard Him. The, the word about is not necessarily in the text. You've learned Christ, you've heard Him, and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And having learned and heard Christ and being taught in Him and knowing Him as the life-giving, sin-and-death-defeating truth, many of you have turned from the darkness of verses 17 through 19 and you have embraced Christ in repentance and faith only. Faith only in Him. And I love that. I love this description of Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. The truth the one and only truth. That may be politically incorrect, but it is biblical and eternally truthful. The truth is in Jesus. The truth himself proclaimed, I am the way. I am the truth. And I, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John fourteen six. And he promises in another place, I think it's John 8, that the truth will set you free. Christ will set you free. Listen to this. This applies to all of us. You need to hear this if you don't know Christ. And you who belong to him need to hear it again because we live on the gospel, don't we? The truth is that all have sinned against God and have fallen far short to the standards of his of his righteousness and goodness and perfection and that in the glory of his perfect righteousness and justice God rightly punishes sin he would deny his godness if he didn't punish sin and sinners the penalty being eternal conscious death and hell and the truth is that God is love so the truth is God must justly punish sin and sinners the truth also is that God is love and in the glory of his mercy and grace he sent his son to bear the death penalty for sins for all who will believe in him and he could do that because he was without sin. He was perfect. And therefore, he didn't have to pay for his own sins.
but he willingly laid down his life for the glory of the Father to pay the penalty of all who will believe in him. So, don't hold back. Come to him. Now, before moving on to the third point in the outline, what specifically does Paul teach here in Ephesians 4 about what the truth is in Jesus? Here's a quote from John R.W. Stott. I love his commentary on on Ephesians. The quote, To learn Christ is to grasp the new creation which He has made possible and the entirely new life which results from it. It is, continuing on, by God's grace and life-giving power, quote, nothing less than putting off your old humanity like a rotten garment and putting on like clothing the new humanity recreated in God's image. To put it in another way, to really learn and know the truth in Jesus is to repent of your deadly sinful life and turn to Christ who is your life. Life in Him. Therefore, and I think there's something in your notes here as well. And by the way, um, like, I, like I said, the text is so massive. I just can't go in, into depth in all of these points. So I encourage you, and you can jot this down to remind you to do it, do a parallel passage study in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Therefore, as a believer in Christ, you have put off your old self, the old man, the old woman, the the old humanity, And you have put on the new self, the new man, the new woman, the new humanity. As a lover and follower and believer in Jesus, you have experienced the reality of Ephesians 2, 12 through 15, where it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated, having no hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create for himself one new man. No long, you remember this? No longer Jews or Gentiles, but one brand new people. And when you come to Christ, you are that new man, that new woman. You are part of the new people that God in Christ has created. It is unbelievably great and glorious. A brand new people. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this can be good enough to match 
not one of us rather can be good enough to match God's standards of holiness to earn his favor and somehow save ourselves we can't be good enough we need the new life that is only available to us in Christ and we can't create that for ourselves there's one creator right and it's not us only God in and through his son Jesus now here's number three. And I can't neglect the 23rd verse of chapter 4. So quickly, when you are in Christ, having taken off the old deadly man and put on the new self in him, it's because God has made you alive in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to emphasize this over and over and over again. This is so foundational for what will follow in verses 25 and following. And included in that new life is a new mind, a renewed mind, a mind to be renewed again and again and again. Listen, being taught in the truth of Jesus, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And this verb is present tense. We are to keep on being renewed in our minds. Why? Because if we put off, if we, if we have put on the new man and been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we will certainly have to deal with ongoing battles against sinfulness that remain from our flesh. Vestiges of the old man and woman remain. These tendencies, we, from time to time, we, we tend to revert back to self-driven living, to to sinful desires and actions. That's why renewing our minds is so vitally important. Pursuing the mind of Christ. Read it in Philippians 2, 5 and following. In the Word and prayer and fellowship with other believers as we battle temptation and sin together. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and completer of our faith and as we continually offer our lives to God in worship Romans 12 1 and 2 just here's an aside it's not really a commercial it's 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 really more than that that's why it is so vitally important for every one who's a part of Redeemer to be involved in a missional community and a DNA group because you need the encouragement of one another in the renewing of your minds. Now we're at point number four. The review I mentioned at the outside has been purposefully lengthy. And here's why. And this has been the burden of my heart now for several days. If we take verses 25 through 30, 32 as somehow detached from 17 through 24 there's a very real danger of treating the text as if it is a legalistic list of do's and don'ts and something that we can do by ourselves we just get it out and we, we do as good a job as we can do and then and I've heard this from many people over the years as a pastor I've done the best I can. I'm better than most people. Surely God will receive me. 
or I'm preparing to do a funeral for a person who likely died without Christ. And loved ones will say, well, he or she was such a nice person and did so much good. Surely God will welcome him into heaven or her. That's not a biblical idea. If we do that, if we treat verses 25 through 32 as a legalistic list of do's and don'ts, don'ts and then just do our best, if we do that and get it wrong, we dishonor the Lord Jesus, we cheapen His cross and His blood, and we devalue the purchase price He paid for His church. So I want you to do this from here on out. Internalize these last verses of chapter 4 knowing and even rejoicing in this truth as a follower of Christ that once you were spiritually dead in your sins and by the miracle of the new birth you are no longer spiritually dead but alive. That once you were enslaved to evil and to the evil one. This is right there in Ephesians 2. And you were under the just and right wrath of God. That because you know the truth in Jesus and because of the new creation work in you, the old has passed away and the new has come. Newness including Christ resident within us by His Spirit. Did you get that? Resident within us by His Spirit. And we receive verses 25 and 32 in that light, not hopelessly, but because Christ is our hope. And when he calls us to obedience to these verses, and he does, because the entire word is his, he does so for our joy. So receive verses 25 through 32 with an attitude of happy obedience, knowing that your new life in Christ enables you to live in obedience to battle sin, to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness. Therefore, believer, now I'm to number four, having put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, put on a new wardrobe. And there's examples of the garments that will follow. Stinky grave clothes are out. They are not fashionable. And new clothes designed to call attention to the designer, capital D, are in if you belong to Jesus. Who's the designer? Christ is. And there are several examples of garments to take off because we've been created new and garments to put on because we've been created new. And when we wear the new garments, glory comes to the designer. Attention comes to the designer. Here's the first one. It's letter A. Speak the truth. 
Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, for the sake of time, uh, I'll be doing a little cherry picking here. Um, There could be a sermon on every one of these verses. Dr. Stott, in his commentary, is really helpful here. Paul's choice of the word falsehood in the original, is also rendered the lie. The lie. And Stott says it's possible that Paul is referring to Romans one twenty-five and the great lie of idolatry. And so you know what that says. I'll turn there and read it for you. Romans 1 is this devastating description, much of a devastating description of human beings in open rebellion against God. And I'll start with verse 24 and then signal when we get to 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, or it could be the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's idolatry who is blessed forever. Amen. The great lie of idolatry. That's really helpful in understanding now here in verse 25 because lies and denials of truth and plain realities as well as just plain old lies and misrepresentations of of truth, have-truths, whatever you want to call them, all of them flow out of idolatry. Worship of other gods and especially ourselves. It's the human condition, isn't it, that our favorite God is self. That is apart from the grace of God. Here's an example of that. This is a fresh illustration. You've heard of it in the news. The New York State Senate voted to make the right of abortion constitutional in their state. And... In the legislation, they included that a baby can legally be aborted at any time right up to the time of delivery. Here's the example. Stating that a baby is not alive until born and can be legally aborted right up until delivery comes from God-defying exaltation of sovereign selves of men and women. And it is a murderous lie. Now note this. Speaking the truth is especially, look at it in the text, it is especially important in the the church. Because we've been created new. Because we're called to holiness and righteousness. Lying damages our fellowship And our trust in Christ within, within. And it does harm in the, to the name of Jesus without. And we know this, that lying especially by those who name his name defames Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So it's really important for us to take this matter of truth-telling seriously. 
we identify ourselves as the one who is the truth. Right? Here's the second of the examples. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's several observations I'll make and a stunning scriptural connection or two. Be angry and do not sin conveys that sometimes anger is right and righteous. And there are times when expressions of anger from God's people are called for. And when sitting by sedately reflects the permissive spirit of the age. Again, this, this legislation in New York State, it, it, when, I re- when I read about it online, I got nauseated and so sad. There's a pastor I follow on social media and he wrote, I'm seething with anger over this. I would say, I can't believe it. But this is where we are, he wrote. And then he said, where are all the social justice advocates now? They are silent. Abortion, a state constitutional right? Allowing abortion legally right up to term and delivery? That's something to be righteously angry about. It's a devilish invasion, is it not? What about us? Are we angry over such things? Are we angry over our own sins and sinfulness, the tendencies that revisit us again and again and again, and we give permission? Does this anger lead to grief and then to repentance and then to action? But, you look at the text, 26 and 27, so often anger is not righteous. There seems to be a, I I tried to figure out a way to describe this, there seems to be a strong spiritual sinew connecting believers' fleshliness with our emotions and our mouths and our behavior. So angry, so anger can kind of control us and run away with us. Paul knew of the awful destruction of of sin associated with anger, so he wrote three negatives. He says, "Be angry," but then there's these, these these cautions that come. Don't sin. Anger flowing out of selfishness, pride, spite, jealousy, revenge, whatever it might be, it's to be squashed. And we do that by looking to Jesus and soaking in the Word and praying that the Spirit will work self-control in you. And then don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't nurture and enjoy your anger because it will lead you downward to resentment and hatred. Look to Christ. Bow to Him. Put on humility. Philippians 2, read it every day if you need to. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, You say, I'm just this way. i got a short temper, I can't help it. I've got my 
I got my dad's temper. You should have seen him fly off the handle. I'm, I can't help it. By the way, my dad didn't have that kind of temper. That's a lie. Are you saying that your predisposition to throw a fit, have a temper tantrum, which leads to all kinds of other stuff in relationships, cannot be overcome by the power of Christ? Is that what you're saying? It's a lie. So we must submit ourselves to Christ. And then the third negative is don't give the devil an opportunity. The forces of, de- of evil will certainly exploit our fleshly, self-centered fits of anger, our concern with ourselves, wreaking havoc on our relationships and our very souls. Why did Paul write about the devil in this spot? I think there's, there, there's a number of reasons, but here's one that I want to share with you. Go to Christ and his preaching in Matthew chapter 5, would you please? His preaching on the mount, his, his sermon on the mount, Matthew 5. Starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone, listen to this, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see the parallel there with murder? You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The description here is using angry language and saying to somebody else, you are a fool. You don't count for anything. I'm looking down my nose at you. Whoa, Jesus really mean that? Oh yeah. You can see how serious the Lord Jesus is about sinful anger and why we must battle it and kill it. Do you, do you struggle with a short temper and anger and other sin like that? Come see me afterwards. I'll, I'll point you to some great, great biblical instruction on how to kill sin. The letter C, don't steal but work and give. This is short. The applications, the practical stuff about this prohibition are obvious, but I want us to look at the affirmative command to work especially in light of our belonging to Christ and His body, the church. Yes, do honest work. And it's implied support yourselves as you do honest work and support your family. That's an implication. Be motivated by looking to and helping others in need. Your extended family, the church family, the ministry, the mission of the gospel, work 
to be generous. That's a good way to just sum all this up. Work to be generous. Not to keep and build a big nest egg. Letter D. No corrupt talk. Look at verse 29. I'm back to Ephesians 4 now. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see how much of this teaching relates to uh, the tongue, the mouth, the, the, the use of language? Maybe I could have put in the outline instead of no corrupt talk, watch your mouth. The original word for corrupting here means rotten. It's often used in describing rotten uh, fruit. It's a great descriptor because of the wicked and destructive, poisonous power of the tongue when it's out of control and used to harm and destroy. James chapter 3, read it. But in Christ, we're called to speak in fitting ways. Not profane, obscene, shocking ways in bad taste. Some of you may struggle with this, especially guys. In Christ, we're called to speak in fitting ways in order to build up and encourage others so that grace and blessing are imparted to those who hear. This goes with belonging to Christ and being a new creation. So how do we grow in this? I think it's important for us to view our ability to speak as a gift from God for praising Him in everything. The purpose of everything about us is to to bring praise and glory to God, including the things that we say. Be filled with the Spirit. That means inundate yourself with, with, with the truth of the Bible and ask God to help you and bless your speech. And especially, this is important, if you have a pattern of sinful speaking, then seek some accountability and encouragement from others. You guys who have problems with the the four-letter words coming out, you who may be using the, the names of God in vain, find a, find a buddy. Get in a DNA, DNA group and say, I know this is dishonoring to God. I don't want to talk like this. Help me. Here's letter E. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it may well, and, and, and I, I treat this as separate. It may well be that don't grieve the Holy Spirit is here for a reason, flowing out of the no corrupt talk point. All sin grieves the person of the, the Spirit. But I want to be home, I, I just, I just want to home in on one reason why this admonition appears right after no corrupting talk. Earlier in chapter 4, read it in verses 1 through 2, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who is the giver of unity among followers of Jesus. It's a unity that's characterized, we just read this, by obedience to Christ, the display of humility, expression of gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and peace. But, when in the course of using words of gossip and untruth, and innuendo and backbiting and rumor-mongering and marginalization and the like, when those things come out in the context of the church, the fellowship of Christ's body is, and, and the unity of the Spirit is damaged or even destroyed. And that grieves the Spirit. Because the church is the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is intent on seeing that Jesus gets glory in the church. Here's the last one. Another F. Put away selfish unkindness and be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, like God forgives. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Did he not forgive those who nailed him to the beam? Remember those words? So how did Christ forgive you?
demonstrate the beauty and depth of Christ Jesus and his forgiveness. So this is for all of you, but especially couples, because I know this is true. We need to hear this. Will you withhold forgiveness even though you know the Lord calls you to it and has enabled you to give it? You mustn't. You can't. You rob yourself of joy 